Welcome to VSI, Variation Selection Inheritance, a podcast production of the National Science Foundation's Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution in Action. I'm Randall Hayes. A couple of weeks ago, I interviewed three young ladies who were at the beginnings of their scientific careers. Did anyone else notice how polite they were to each other and to me? Mm-hmm. Did you... Did you agree with the, like, the commentary that you sent us about them not really agreeing with the author of the article, or are you, did you enjoy the article, like, side with the author of the original piece? How well they took to being interrupted? Never once did any of them say, shut the hell up, I was talking. That, for a human, is our dominance hierarchy in play. It's a little less obvious than sniffing and biting like dogs do, but it serves the same purposes. People who are more dominant or who have higher status demand more resources, and they get them. And they may not even know consciously that they're doing it. I'm always asking my students, but why do you want respect? What good is respect? We know respect feels nice and disrespect makes you angry, but why? What's the bottom line? They have a hard time with the idea that their emotions are both a cause and an effect. In other words, there's a causal chain. Resources, like food or wealth, cause emotions, and emotions cause actions. Traditionally, biologists have wanted to eliminate the emotional middleman from that set of equations and focus only on resources and actions. I personally think that was a mistake, because for non-scientists, like most of my students, it kind of eliminated the most immediate connection to their own lives. That's why you'll hear me later asking Kay Holocamp about whether hyenas and lions hate one another. But let's get back to the dominance track here. You'll notice a very different conversational dynamic playing out today as I talk to Kay Holocamp about her studies of hyenas who have a dominance hierarchy and who do sniff and bite one another in displays of dominance and submission. The thing I just want to point out here is that you will hear a whole different level of confidence in her voice. She does not check to see what I think before she answers a question. She does not giggle to diffuse any possible aggression on my part. Now, is that just personality? Is Kay Holocamp a dominant female? Or is it just simply age and expertise talking? How long have you been working uh, in Africa and with hyenas specifically? Well, I started this hyena project officially with NSF support in 1987. Uh, so we set up our camp and actually started working with the hyenas in, in the spring of 1988. And you were the you were the PI of that the whole time. That's right. Yes, yeah, so I've had continuous NSF support for that since then. So, uh, what did you do before? I mean, some you know some graduate students, I think, sort of inherit their projects from their mentors. Were you did you do field biology all the all the way through? 
Yes, but I didn't start working with hyenas at all um, until that point. I mean, I started going to Kenya in 1985 to see if I wanted to work on hyenas, to see if I was any good at it, uh, and, uh, you know, I enjoyed it, so I, I decided to pursue it. But before that, I had been working mainly on ground squirrels for my Ph.D. and postdoctoral work. In the States? Yeah, I worked on two separate populations of populations of Belding's ground squirrels in the Sierra Nevada of California, and then uh, for my postdoc, I was working on California ground squirrels, uh, which are the ones, the big ones that live along the coast of California. So how do you then just say, I'm going to go to Kenya and try it out? I mean, that seems like kind of a, a leap. Um, it, it was interesting, actually. Uh, the guy who had been my Ph.D. mentor at, at UC Berkeley, after I graduated, uh, got hyenas at Berkeley, and he found keeping them in captivity uh, for a couple of years that, whereas in nature females are always socially dominant to males in that species, in captivity the males were just as likely to dominate the females as vice versa. And so I was just up there um, having lunch with him one day when I was during my postdoctoral period, and he said he told me about this result, and he said, you know, it would be really interesting if somebody were to go out to the field and study social development in these animals to understand how they come to understand their ranks and fit into this complex society. And he said, I thought you'd be a good person to go do that. And I said, yeah, well, I've wanted to do something like that since I was six years old. Where do I sign? And he said, oh, you just need to go get some NSF support and do it. So uh, it took a while, but ultimately that's what, exactly what happened. So I... Uh Bob Sapolsky told me about – that's how I first sort of learned about the unusual things about hyenas. He was – he gave a talk to my grad school class about stress in baboons, and he was right. you know, in Kenya studying them. And he talked about that same hyena colony at Berkeley. Right. I didn't realize they were I – th I thought they were sort of like uh, in a – not caged, but sort of loose in a game preserve. Is that right? Well, I studied them in a game preserve in Kenya, but in Berkeley they have them in big pens. Okay, because he just sort of described, you know, being able to hear them at night from campus. Yeah, that's right. You can hear their vocalizations are very loud and carry long distances. So, yes, you can hear them all over the Berkeley Hills from uh, once, once the traffic noise dies down. So had you had any experience with them? Did you get to, you know, hang out with them while you were at Berkeley? Is that sort of one of the things that helped you decide to, to try to go to Kenya? No, that's the colony that wasn't there at all until after I graduated, but it was my Ph.D. mentor who, who started the colony in the mid-'80s. So, um, yeah, I never uh, got to do any work with the colony until many years later. Now I, I work with it fairly often, but unfortunately it's going. Oh, are, are they, what, going to ship them off to zoos or something? Yeah, they've just run out of um, NIH stopped supporting them, and NSF budgets just aren't big enough to support them, so uh, they're in trouble. Why was the NIH supporting them in the first place? What were they doing? Well, they were actually looking at patterns of urogenital development because what's, what happens in, in hyenas naturally happens during anomalous human pregnancies when uh, human females during pregnancy are exposed to um, uh, un unusual arrays of androgens. And so they develop masculinized genitalia and they come out looking like males and then, you know, chromosomally they're females, but, but they appear to be males, and it's a mess. <laughs> so NIH was interested in that. So they were using the hyenas as, as a model species for, uh, is it specifically testosterone that, that causes the, the masculinized genitalia? 
Actually, it, it, turns whole... out, it, it turns out not to be. Um, you know, you can actually take all, all all androgens, testosterone, and other androgenic hormones away from developing fetuses, and these chromosomal females will still develop um, an enormous phallus that look normal. So, uh, you know, all that the androgens do is sort of put the finishing touches on it in terms of the shape of, of this, this strange organ. So something else is happening in hyenas that... Um, is is very unusual in in human um, pregnancies it does seem to be uh, unusual exposure to specific hormones not not strictly genetically determined okay so they so they turned out not to be a very good model species for that not for that particular problem that's right okay but the hyenas do still have the females have that what they call a pseudo penis right and, yeah, and they actually they give birth through that. Yeah, that's got to hurt, eh? <laughs> I, I remember thinking that must just completely tear them up. It does. It gives them a natural episiotomy, so uh, we can actually always tell when a when a, a, a young adult female's had her first litter because she has a big big tear on the back of her phallus for some time and it heals and leaves this big patch of pink scar tissue that's there forever so it's very handy for us because sometimes first litters die underground and we never see the cubs but we know that she's had the litter. Sapolsky also told this story about uh, hyenas being born with fully erupted teeth and that the and that the litters often actually fight while they're still underground. They definitely do. Uh, They don't fight so much underground as when they're nursing. It's when they have a resource that they the mother only has two teeth and so the litter sizes are very small. They only have one or two cubs. And when they have two, the first thing that the cubs do straight out of the womb is to start fighting using these these fully erupted canine and incisor teeth uh, to um, bite their siblings. And they it was originally thought that they were fighting to kill the other guy to get rid of them. But as it turns out, you know, that obviously has important inclusive fitness repercussions that don't make sense. I think I need to break in here for a moment and just remind people who've not been listening since our very first episodes what the phrase inclusive fitness means. For a biologist, fitness does not mean you've got big muscles. It means you have lots of children. More specifically, it means lots of copies of your genes. So you can kind of translate any blood relative into fitness units. For instance, my sister has half my genes and her kids have half her genes. So her kids each share, on average, a quarter of my genes. And she has four of them. So according to this inclusive fitness theory, my genes would be better off to keep all four of her children alive than they would to keep my one son alive. That seems creepy and wrong, doesn't it? I mean, I like my nieces and nephews, but I love my son. The problem is that the pattern only appears when you average across lots of individual examples. Trying to prove it at the level of one person's individual emotions is probably the wrong way to think about it. All inclusive fitness really implies is that you're more likely to love and want to help a close blood relative than a distant blood relative. So what we've found out in the in intervening years since that hypothesis was first proposed, using ultrasonography, we actually compared numbers of fetuses in the mother versus number of kids appearing above ground and so forth, and 
doing that, we actually have been able to rule out the I want to kill my sibling hypothesis so much as what works is that they want to actually establish a rank relationship with their but the fighting is very impressive when they first come out of the womb. So, and it's not even that they're sort of fighting over food. Well, the, the main time that you see fighting taking place is when the mother's present at the den and they're both trying to nurse. So, um, you know, if, if a cub establishes dominance over its sibling, then when its own teat runs dry, it can just bite the other cub and get the other cub to get off the other nipple and, and can take the milk that's left in there. So it is, it is really a food-related um, aggression from the from the very beginning okay so then they do they die then does the weaker one then sort of die of starvation or does the older one actually kill it the former thing they generally just die of starvation so very rarely do you see wounds inflicted that are bad enough to actually result in okay so that's that strikes me as as interesting because the only the only other species where i that i know of where it's fairly common for the females to be larger and dominant are raptors and they and those chicks definitely do kill each other right in the same way over food but uh but i think there you actually see them like kicking each other out of the nest and things yeah that's right you do see see, see that in various raptors and in herons and egrets and boobies and so forth uh and yeah in fact that was the only thing that was known about infanticidal aggression until um the Sienna story started to emerge when they had the captive colony and they could actually see what happened immediately after birth. So it is certainly true that that kind of um, intensive aggression is very unusual among mammals, but, but the main reason for that is because resources, the milk, mother's milk, is generally um, really hard to monopolize in um, animals that give birth to multiple young because usually mothers have more teats than they need um, to, to support the litter size that they generate. Here, uh, you know, it's it's just barely able to support two cubs, you know, and the mothers can only do that when ecological conditions are 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 appropriate. But but in fact, just just to you know, um, as an aside on that one point, there are actually a lot of species where females are larger. Like you know, you, you know of um, black widow spiders and various other insects, uh, for example, all have larger females than males. And there are some some bats where that's true, and some primates. And anyway, it's it's not it's not unheard of, but it's you know the only other place where you see this massive killing of uh you know uh, fighting amongst youngsters is in the in those birds well i didn't know there were any other primates any any other mammals where the females were larger do you, do you know happen to know which primate species it is off the top of your head yeah there are a number of lemur species where females are, are a little bit larger than males and socially dominant to males and oh, right. um let's see i actually the naked mole rat queen is substantially larger than males and she's you know she's certainly dominant to them uh so we have that um what else um there's just little oddball oddball species that you don't hear much about but mainly there are some mole rats some lemurs and some uh, you know these uh hyenas where among mammals it is extremely unusual to have females be larger than males so why is that i mean normally isn't it that males are larger because they're fighting over females that's right and here male fighting doesn't do any good because females are basically calling all the shots in terms of who who gets to mate with them so the phallus does absolutely give them complete control over who fertilizes their eggs and uh so there's no point in the males 
duking it out physically because it just gets them nowhere. Even if they, you know, win a fight with another male, the female may reject them. So there's just no point in it evolutionarily. And uh, so what uh, they do instead is they come in and form a queue. And the females, it's, it's almost like an endurance rivalry where they come in and they've got to last for years and years for the females to find them attractive. So it's really quite a different system. Wait, wait you said something there that, that kind of blew my mind for a second. So the, the pseudo-penis makes makes rape impossible? Absolutely. <laughs> Female cooperation is completely necessary under these circumstances. So so now I'm thinking in terms of, you know, like the fossil record and stuff like that. When, which do you think came first, the, the physical adaptation or the female social dominance? I suspect female social dominance did because you'd need that in place for fighting to become useless for the males. And um, and so I actually think that then there was probably some sort of, you know, war between the sexes in terms of um, control over over fertilizations. And uh, you know, there's there's clearly sperm competition in these in these animals. Multiple males typically mate with the females, and their reproductive tracts are just crazy internally, and they're all filled with blind alleys and dead ends and strange glands producing Lord knows what uh, kinds of substances that may or may not be spermicidal. So, you know, and they they because of the androgen exposure in utero, their ovaries, not their genitalia, but their ovaries are very strongly affected, so they have very little um, egg-producing tissue and a lot of um, interstitial tissue, you know, the hormone-producing tissue. So they release only one egg from each each ovary uh, at each ovulation. So it's uh, it may be some kind of a situation where, you know, too many sperm can actually cause damage, which is known in some other species. Well, that uh, humans also, you know, don't breed with litters. But again, that's it's probably a totally different mechanism, right? I suspect so. Yeah, given the different um, histories. Is there a way to know? from just a skeletal fossil structure, how far back some of these changes might have happened. I mean, I know that hyena, there used to be a lot more species of hyenas than there are now, right? Yeah, that's right. There was one point during the Miocene when there was something like 27 species roaming the surface of the Earth at once, including one that was the size of a lion. It must have been really scary. But um, yeah, that's right. Now, it, today we have only four extant hyena species, and um, the only hyena species that has any genital uh, masculinization is this spotted hyena, and I, I suspect um, there was a unique set of circumstances where spotted hyenas shifted over as the trees receded from the, the uh, plains of Africa, and it became open grassland. Then, roughly about the same time, and probably for the same reasons as lions became gregarious. You know, they're the only gregarious cat. Um, the hyenas probably had to start forming groups in order to either well, probably not to acquire, but to defend resources. And uh, at that point, when they start living in a group, then uh, a dominant structure is going to emerge. And here, because the, the, they still have this residual bone-cracking skull left over from millions of years of de descending from you know, bone-cracking ancestors that were specialized for carrion feeding. So they have a carrion feeder's morphology combined with living like in a baboon-like society. And that combination, I think, is completely unique in... Uh, the animal kingdom. And so they, they only became running endurance predators like a dog sort of after the after the grasslands opened up? Yeah, that's right. What I mean, this species is really brand new evolutionarily. It first appears in the fossil record somewhere between 200,000 and 900,000 years ago. So in the last million years, the modern spotted hyena appears for the first time in this fossil record. And its postcranial anatomy is actually... Um, 
adapted for cursorial hunting as opposed to any other bone-cracking hyena, uh, all of which were specialized for, you know, skulking along at a slow gait and just basically rambling looking for carrion. So they don't have to run fast to catch a dead thing, obviously. Um, but there were, in a different clade, um, uh, what they call the dog-like hyenas, which were also specialized for hunting, but, but that's an entirely different group. And the only descendant we have of that group is the aardwolf. Which doesn't really hunt, right? It just digs around no, a giant it, termite. Exactly. Room. That one specialized in its own way, just and it eats nothing but termites. So it's lost most of its teeth, and it trots along and eats termites. Okay, so in in one sense, then the when I looked at your website and I looked at some of the the art that you had posted there and things and and the associations that people have with the hyenas being sort of these these merchants of of death and disease right. and being carrion feeders, that's really not completely untrue except in the case of the spotted hyena. No, that's right. Um, and in fact, historically, yeah, um, all the other bone-cracking forms um, over the last 12 or 13 million years, uh, there were a number of them, and they all specialized on carrion. So yes, there's you know there's some truth to that. The Walt Disney view of the hyena is much more like a modern striped hyena or a brown hyena, but nothing like a spotted hyena. Okay, but uh, the ones that I've been I keep seeing in the nature documentaries, the Those are and spotted hyena. Right. Those are the spotted hyenas, and those are the ones that have all the trouble with the lions. That's right. They have a lot of trouble with lions, exactly. Lions are their main competitors and their main agent of death. Yeah, I, there was a, a great one, a, a great one that was – I was actually watching – it was pretty clear from watching this. My dog actually does the same behavior. Uh, you know, She'll actually uh, piss on somebody's trail. Like the postman walks across the yard, and she'll go squat on his trail and mark on it. And but it was you would see these the the lions and the hyenas cross marking over one another, you know, very gang like sort of uh, you know tagging the same territory kind of things. Do you think it's it, it's personal, or just sort of you know professional? Do, I, they, do they actually hate one another? Well, I think um, the. Hyenas come into the world very fearful of hyena of lions, so so there seems to have been a long evolutionary history of bad relationships. But I don't think it's personal in the sense that um, you know they go out of their way to harry lions or whatever. Um, I think it's simply a matter of um, you know long-term interspecific competition for for exactly this. So strictly business. That's what I think. Yeah. And that is very very different than the than the sort of Disney Lion King model of what the hyenas were like, Absolutely. where they were, That's you know, right. it, it was very personal that they that there were particular lions that they didn't like. That's right, exactly. And that, there's nothing nothing like that going on here. Okay, so um, I'm still really curious about the uh, about some of the female dominance aspects. What what it had, so you you sort of laid out, you know how it might have happened. How did you come to those conclusions? What what kind of experiments did you do with the hyenas that in the wild well, that you couldn't do with a colony or something? Um, well, what we've been able to do with the the wild hyenas is actually we, we do experiments where we give them um, – uh, a, a little carcass to fight over, for example, at the den when you have only cubs present and you don't um, have any maternal influences on their rank relationships. And when they first, you know, when they're first born, they don't um, 
they don't know where they fit in hyena society, and they just basically exhibit submissive behavior to any other creature they encounter. However, um, over even non hyenas. Yeah, they actually they exhibit they they even exhibit submissive behavior to um, animals walking by or plants waving in the wind. <laughs> they're very nervous at first, but that's appropriate because they're little and helpless. So, um, but less helpless than other carnivores, right? I mean, their eyes are open. They've got teeth. That's right. So much less helpless than other newborn carnivores, but they're still they're still very. Uh, uncoordinated and tiny, so they're very vulnerable. Do other carnivores do do submission displays to, like, plants and inanimate things? Uh, you know, uh, I've not seen it written about in the literature, so I honestly don't know. I, I would be surprised if they didn't at the outset, just because, again, the world's scary when you first sort of come above ground as a carnivore, more born in creches or dens. Under okay, so you take a dead antelope or something and, and just sort of leave it at the den while mom's not there and just sort of see what happens? Yeah, we actually can put it down. We're trying to simulate the competitive feeding conditions that we see among adults, only actually we're trying to simulate it in the in the kids when they're little. And so and, and even though they're all still nursing, they're very happy to have this meat. They love meat. And so they come racing out of the den and they cluster around this, you know, dead gazelle or whatever it is we've been able to find. We find road killed things and, and put them you know, use those for our experimental uh, situations, and then they fight over the food, just like the adults do. Uh, only what you can actually do is look at those fight outcomes and see who's dominating whom when they're very young, and then do the same test again with the same cohort three or four months later, and you see quite a, a, a radical change where their ranks become isomorphic with the ranks of their mothers. So they assume their maternal ranks as they grow up, and that's as a result of learning experience. Like, if I bite you, my mother's going to come and help me, uh, but if I bite that guy over there, my mom's not going to help, and I'm going to get beat up. So they, they learn this very quickly over the course of ontogeny. So it's actually more important who your mom is than how big you personally are. Absolutely, yeah. We've seen even very young cubs dominate much, much bigger, larger animals who could easily kill them. Uh, but you know everybody abides by these uh, these rules of of maternal rank inheritance in hyenas, just exactly like what you find happens in baboons or macaques, and that's another thing that makes the animals so very peculiar. You know they live in a society that's absolutely nothing like the societies of any other carnivore. And that's that's pretty interesting then because it it sort of says that these these hierarchical social behaviors are can pop up whenever the environment. Whenever the environment allows it, that's exactly is that right? right. Or, yes, or is it is it more right. constrained by maybe history than I'm thinking? Well, there's a, certainly a strong historical influence because you know you see um, hierarchical structures emerging in a, a lot of different animals, invertebrates and vertebrates alike. But you don't very often see a sexual reversal in in the normal dominance relationships. And I think that is where the history comes in because this is where having descended from a bone cracking ancestor. Uh, their skulls are these big, massive bone-cracking machines, and it just takes them forever to reach full size and shape. And we've done – that's the other set of experiments we've done where we actually have looked at ontogenetic patterns of shape change and size change in the skull, and we find that compared to other carnivores like non-specialists like coyotes, for example, or bobcats, uh, the skulls just take – many, many, many years to develop uh, as opposed to a few months, which is what you know is typical in dogs and cats, say. Well, there's been some suggestions from people saying that, that human skull development 
may have a lot more to do with sort of allowing our extended youth and our, our social structure and our intelligence than we've given it credit for. You think yeah, that's, I, I, yeah, that may I, have something to do with the same thing, like it allows for longer-term brain growth? Yeah, because we don't have any of these kinds of constraints that um, hyenas or, or you know various other carnivores have in terms of the skull has to both house the brain and also function as a feeding apparatus. And because we have very weak jaws, but there are, that means there are no constraints on sort of how bulbous the top of your head can get. So I actually think there's something to that hypothesis. But it wouldn't work the same way in hyenas because they – even though their skulls have to continue growing, they're not soft like ours? That's right. They're, they're also, because um, they need huge muscle attachment sites for the jaw-closing muscles, the temporalis and the masseter, they actually have massive sagittal crests, and, and they have, in fact, a huge airspace that goes over the whole brain below, you know, it's above the brain case, but below the, the, the top of the skull, and that they need that to dissipate the stresses that are imposed by cracking open big bones. So they have very, very heavily constrained brain size by virtue of of the other demands on the skull. Then when you say it takes the long time a skull to de- for the skull to develop, what do you what do you mean by that exactly? Because I, I, I assumed you meant the same thing that it was soft and not and not done yet. No, sorry. What, what, what the importance of it for the, from the hyena's point of view is that it basically slows down your feeding to have an in, immature skull. So we've done tests where we actually feed the hyena standardized. Um, food objects and time how long it takes them to consume the object starting when they're just a month old and all the way into adulthood and um, we find that you know, even when they're over three years of age, they, they still can't eat even even like a, a dog biscuit, some compressed cereal, really easy thing, you know. We don't have to be talking about bones, but it takes them much longer to actually consume this thing than it would a larger hyena. And what that does is that put kids at a competitive disadvantage at the competitive, you know, the feeding frenzy kinds of situations that you've almost certainly seen on television where, uh, you know, you've got many hyenas feeding around a carcass and everybody's tearing off food as fast as they can and they can put away something like 15 kilos of food in, in 20 minutes. I mean, it's extraordinary how much they can consume, but they can make the carcass just go away altogether before a kid can even, you know, get the nutrients it needs for the day. So do they then, you know, share food downwards or like some of the other carnivores do, or how do the kids deal with that then? Well, that the, that's, I think, what's what's favored the evolution of female dominance. So they live in these big groups, but they also have these developmental constraints on, on feeding speed in the kids. So that has put huge selection pressure on the adult females to be socially dominant and be able to displace other hyenas from food so that their kids can actually get in there and take longer to consume the food they need. Oh, so, so uh, dominant mom's kids get more and have more time than submissive mom's kids. That's exactly right, and their kids do a lot better. Oh, okay. Inclusive fitness goes a long way towards explaining a lot of ugly human behaviors, too. Why are we so reluctant to give our resources away, especially to poor people who don't look like us, who don't speak our language, who don't share our religious or political views? All humans are related to some extent, of course, but it's like George Orwell put it in Animal Farm. All animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. According to inclusive fitness theory, all men are not brothers. Some are brothers, some are first cousins, and some are 23rd cousins who you've never met before, never will meet again. So if you can screw them over to benefit your own children, you better do so. Unless there are lions around. 
Has anyone else creeped out by the idea that lions and hyenas caused one another's social structures? Like a cooperative arms race? When hyenas became social, a solitary lion couldn't compete. So they, they had to become social too, which just reinforced the need for clans in hyena society. Something like the threat of the Soviet Union driving the European countries to form NATO with the United States after World War II. What could possibly drive hyenas and lions to work together? What kind of enemy could possibly do that? I don't know. But go back and read Alan Moore's Watchmen with this idea in mind. I think it, will, it changes the experience. Uh-oh, there's the hyena. That's all the time we have for this week. Tune back in next week when I'll be talking with Kay again about what it's like to be a field biologist. BSI is produced by me, Randall Hayes, with audio editing help from Lauren Branch at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University with funding from the National Science Foundation. Thanks for listening.